5151 is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. And indeed, we will be talking about the Channel 4 series starring Jamie Lee O'Donnell of Derry Girls fame shortly. But first of all, this evening, the Costa Book Awards will be announced later on tonight. And we hope uh, to bring you the winners of the various categories before the end of the programme. Irish Hopes will lie with the poet Victoria Kennefick, Victoria's first collection of poems, Eat or We Both Starve, has been a runaway success, shortlisted for both the Costa and the T.S. Eliot Award. When Victoria was in speaking to us about the collection, we asked her to read some poems for us. And this is Paris Syndrome. Paris Syndrome. The Eiffel Tower erected itself in my head. We couldn't find the lifts, climbed the stairs. Of course, they were fireworks. We stared at each other, rare exhibits in the Louvre, You licked my Mona Lisa smile right off. Of course, we were both in imaginary Chanel. We drank warm cider and ate pancakes, yours flambéed. I got drunk, my tights laddered on both legs. Of course, we experienced tachycardia at the Moulin Rouge. Our hotel, a boxed macaron on a navy boulevard, we spun around in the dark outside, rain dizzy. Of course we slept at the Ritz. Our little room tucked into the corner, a pink pocket you slipped into that night. Of course our fingers hunted for change. In the mirrored elevator, I couldn't meet your eye. I crushed you into the laminated sample menu and died. Of course it was only La Petite Mort. Victoria Kennefick there reading her poem Paris Syndrome from her collections her collection Eat or We Both Starve which is published by Carcanet and we wish Victoria the best of luck with the Costa Poetry Award the winner of which will be announced later on and we hope to bring you news of that before the end of the programme but first now or right now to Channel 4's quote darkly funny unquote or end quote new prison drama Screws starring Derry Girls Jamie Lee O'Donnell kicks off its six part run this Thursday written by the BAFTA nominated screenwriter Rob Williams inspired by his experience of working and volunteering in prisons this series brings a view of incarceration they tell us that is unlike any other Nina Sasanya will lead the cast uh, as the leader of the prison officer Screws a woman called Lee and with me is Jen Gannon who's been watching the first episode of the series I suppose we should get down to the the, the first problem here is that quote that is in the publicity yeah. material of darkly funny just give us the setup for this series first of all Jen and, and we'll try to work out where the darkly funny bit is yeah so basically you've got it's kind of like your typical chalk and cheese dynamic you have the two central characters you have um, Nina Sasania's Lee who is the head officer and Derry Girls Jamie Lee O'Donnell and she's the new girl She's mm. her name is Rose and she's just starting out and it's her first day so she's the audience surrogate so you're getting the view of of this men's prison, it's blo- uh, it's a sea wing uh, of a fictional prison, Longmarsh, which they actually shot in Glasgow's Kelvin Hall. So that all takes place in a set that they built for that mm. uh, purpose. So you're kind of getting two women at the opposite ends of their careers and how they're dovetailing together and how they're they're meeting each other. Yeah, let's listen to a, a clip from very early on in that first episode, and it's the moment when Rose Gill, the Jamie Lee O'Donnell character, introduces herself to Lee Henry, who's the Nina Sasanya character, and there's. <laughs> a problem straight away. I'm Rose Skill, new probationer. Are you chewing gum? No. Which could be used to make a key or block a lock. I mean, I know training's short, but 
Yeah, look, I was honest, I've only been behind the doors for two days and need to unlock. I know, but... You did leave your phone in your locker, didn't you? Yeah. Right, come on, Swiss. Feeding time at the zoo. There we go. Jamie Lee O'Donnell as Rose Gill, Nina Sasanya as Lee Henry, and I think it was Steve uh, White there as one of the other yeah. prison officers, a guy called Gary, just at the end of that clip from Screw, the new Channel 4 series. Jen Gannon, uh, like myself, has seen the first episode of this series. So this is this a very different type of setup than we would usually get around a prison of a prison drama in particular, Jen? Yeah, I think we're used to seeing it from the other side, from the prisoner's point of view, mm. like Orange is the New Black or going back to Prisoner, Cell Block H, one of my favourites, or even Porridge and Oz, the Australian show as well, which is kind of hardcore about what its life is like behind bars and what it's like being a prisoner and trying to survive in that atmosphere, in that environment. So you're getting it from the other side. What it's like to be these people that are genuinely, they don't have much training and that's what you see Mm. from the Rose character where Lee is saying oh you think this is an easy job you're going from being a shop assistant to working in a call centre to now working in a prison and trying to get in kind of a back door to the police Um, so they don't really have that much support and they're not getting paid very well either so I think what uh, Williams is trying to do is you know bring attention to this Williams here being Rob Williams the 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 screenwriter creator Um, of the series because he actually worked in prison voluntarily and he said you know they don't get the, the light shine upon them like the way you do with ambulance workers or police workers and he said you know they do deserve that kind of look into their lives because it is such an interesting job and it's such a strange job to, to choose and he's saying not a lot of people actually choose it but Lee the main character she definitely has chosen it she wants to be there and she believes in the dignity of, of the actual prisoners um, which a lot of the others don't yeah, and, like and Gary the, that, yeah, <laughs> Gary has a different opinion certainly well not only on the prisoners but on most of his Everyone. fellow <laughs> His, 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 his fellow officers as well particularly the female officers but uh, that, that idea of um, you know seeing it from the prison officers side that is a pretty new take mm. and to put this this one particularly the Lee Henry character to put her at the centre of it uh, she's under pressure because there's a new job title yeah. coming in and she's going to have to reapply for her own job. So that kind of drama is going on underneath it as well. It is a kind of workplace, your typical kind of workplace mm. drama in that way that there's all these stresses behind the scenes and you're meeting her at a time when she is losing her cool and this very prim exterior is kind of, you know, almost cracking. Um, and then you're adding to the mix someone like Rose who's very street smart, but she probably, she doesn't have the kind of, she's not mature enough to have settled into a role yet and she doesn't really know what she's doing because straight away she has no training and she keeps complaining that she's supposed to be shadowing somebody and she's getting thrown into the deep end on her very first day and you can see that side of things and I think both as women as well trying to control this group of men these prisoners as well as someone like Gary that they're working with and that kind of dynamic as well is interesting I think. All right, let, let's come back then to this <laughs> darkly comic idea because that classic workplace setup, mm. it just happens to be a, a prison that we're in. Uh, there, are, there are stories about the inmates as well, about the prisoners uh, as well, which yeah. are quite, quite a serious element lying underneath. Them. It's very strange. I think tonally it threw me because... I it has this feel to it where there's comic beats like a sitcom. Mm. So there's, you know, a joke thrown in every 30 seconds or 40 seconds. And I think that's really jarring at times because, you know, on one hand, there's a storyline about a bad smell that's emanating from one of the cells and it turns out to be a, an African bullfrog that's been let loose into the prison. And then on the other hand, it's jostling alongside this very serious storyline yeah. about, a, you know, a paedophile and one of his survivors kind of confronting him as they're sharing a space in the, 
the cell in the war in the wing, and I just found that it could flip too quick. And I understand the tone that he's probably kind of trying to go for is that kaleidoscopic energy of something like Shameless, Paul Abbott's Shameless, and that kind of pitch black gallows humour, and then the lawless madness of the show. But it doesn't tie together I, I, in the first episode. I didn't think. Yeah, well, let, let's listen to another clip a little bit further down, and it's the aforementioned Gary here, the Steve White character, and again, it's an interaction with Jamie Lee O'Donnell playing the character of Rose, and and he's giving her some coll- uh, some collegiate advice, bit of language in the midst of this clip as well. Listen, Sprog, you've got the whole wing sizing you up, trying to work out whether you're going to be a hard bitch or a soft touch and whether they can turn you. How do you think most of the drugs, tech, takeaways get in here? Is it chucked over the wall? Officers. And you best decide which sort you're going to be. Because if you give this lot an inch, they won't just take a mile, they'll take you halfway around the fucking world and you'll be finished before you've even started. I can have a word, boss. Do I look like a mental health nurse? Trust no one. Including you? Better. Stick him in with one of the benefits for... Sorry. Sorry. Asylum seekers. And remember... They put themselves behind these doors. And that's uh, Steve White as the character of Gary in the new Channel 4 series, Screw, that Jen Gannon is uh, looking at for us this evening and the character of Rose plays there by Jamie Lee O'Donnell. Uh, that gives us a sense, Jen, of the kind of tone you're talking about. Mm. Not only are the jokes maybe out of place, but they're in bad taste for sure. The two yeah. that we get in that, the joke about asylum seekers uh, is one of them. Certainly, you know, I don't, I don't think you're going to be laughing out loud at this. I don't really think so. And it just kind of falls short of, I, I know what he's aiming for, but you just feel like the surreal and the serious within a, a blink of an eye just hasn't worked right. for it yet. I think it needs, but the point is like, there is a lot condensed into one day and you're in that set for most of the episode. And it kind of looks like, because it's a built, purpose built for the show, it looks a bit like one of those old sitcoms, like a multi-camera right. sitcom. And it kind of feels quite theatrical then. It's like a play because it's all happening in the one space and you have all these storylines in quick succession with the prisoners over 50 minutes and they all kind of get wrapped up and resolved yeah, very quickly. I, 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 now, and this We might differ slightly on this, I think, because the first 20 minutes or so, um, we get we get to know all the different prison officers. And, mm. and like I really was even had problems working out who the names before the end of that 20 yeah. minutes. But then suddenly when it came to part two, we got this idea of the the, the a character comes in, a new prisoner comes in and we know that one of the prisoners who's already in there is afraid of him. That turns out to be the, the paedophile and yeah. the paedophile's victim having to see each other for the first time in, in years. Or is it? Mm. Uh, so it, it took a turn there and I thought, oh, I like this drama. And if I hadn't seen the words darkly funny... I'd be interested in this, the darkly funny thing I'm still looking for. See, the thing is, I, yeah, that's that's what I was thinking. Also, I think one story, just concentrate on the mm. one story. If they had just had that as the main hinge of the episode, it would have worked better. But they're throwing everything at it. He's like throwing, you know, the kitchen sink at it. You had the, the escaped toad. You had, you know, Lee trying to impress the new governor that's coming in. You had Rose, her first day. You had all of that drama all together. And then you have this very serious storyline that's injected 
reacted into it. And I think if it just had a, played it with one one uh, right. dramatic piece unfolding over one episode, it would have had yeah, a, a better, a, it, a, it, more successful. It's definitely. that difficulty with the first episode, isn't it? Isn't I it? think you know, it is. You They're have to, to kind of way too much. set a lot up as, as much as anything else. Mm. But by the end of that first episode, um, Jamie Lee O'Donnell's character we're finding out something very interesting about her because for the last part of the first mm. episode it goes outside the prison and we're, we're seeing about a dynamic going on outside. Were, were you interested in that? I'm and much what might, more interested in just seeing it split up a bit and calm down a bit, not have everything taking place yeah. in the prison, have them go outside the prison a bit and when, and I think it's great to see Jamie Lee O'Donnell um, doing something different. I think she's a, a really interesting actress and I was delighted to see her in this. Yeah, and obviously people will know her from uh, Michelle and Derry Girl. Who I think is the best Derry Girl. I yeah. actually think it's the most, the be- most well-written character in Derry Girls. I think at, at realism, there's a real mm realism about Michelle I think and she's it, certainly playing a gritty realism and she in this. plays a great like she does a great turn in this but I do think I'm dying to see what actually happens to her outside of the prison and you see you're kind of introduced to the fact that maybe she isn't all that she seems as in she is you know in a world maybe that where she's involved in crime herself and is she going to be the corrupt screw within the prison that is smuggling things into the prison yeah. what's going to happen in that way and then you also have Lee as well because I do think Nina Sassania is a great actress like she is a veteran of British drama. I mean, you'd know her from everything from Love Actually to Teachers to, you know, Nathan Barley and Marcella. Um, and I'd like to see her do more because this is a main role for her. And I want to see her get her teeth into something juicy. And I think with Lee, you don't know. She's very balanced and calm, she seems. But then you also see in the opening sequence, she is sleeping in, in the, the prison, prison herself. So you need to know more about this character, where she's coming from. She also tells a few lies in her interview and you're wondering what will happen to her yeah, later on. So I will be intrigued to see where those characters go. It's just the show needs to settle down a bit and Which know what of, it needs to do. Yeah, what you're kind of surprised when you, when you think of Rob Williams, you know, who's known for his work on Killing Eve and the mm. victim. You know, you would have thought that he'd know how to the get balance. over the first, the first episode difficulty, which That's is a difficulty it. for any series. And I think with Killing Eve, it has such a great balance in that humour, that black comedy, that sensibility and the action and drama that I think it just needs to turn the dial down a bit. And I think if people get used to the fact that it's not lavish like Orange is the New Black, it's not going to have yeah. these massive sequences where you feel like you're in that prison and you, you see the outside as well, like the yard area. This is built in a set, so it is smaller. And once they get used to that and maybe used to the beats of the show itself, it could win people over. It might win people yeah, over. So but will, I, you, will you go back to episodes two and three to see where it goes before you decide whether to stay or go? I'm intrigued to see where it will go. I think they left it with an, enough of a cliffhanger for people to go be intrigued about what happens next. And if they actually just tone down maybe the comic side of it and just concentrate on as more of a drama, it might be more successful. Yeah, and certainly a great development for Jamie Lee O'Donnell. This is, yeah. this is a big move for her. Exactly. And, yeah, yeah, great to see her. Great to see her doing so well in it. That's it. Jen Gannon talking to us about Screw starts on Channel 4 Thursday evening at 9pm. We seldom talk about the past is the selected short stories of John McKenna. John, known to many by, is to many Sunday Miscellany listeners, of course. He's also a novelist, playwright, poet and radio producer. We seldom talk about the past, inspired by fascinating stories of the past. And all for all Sunday Miscellany fans, John has also published an audiobook of his readings that is called I Knew This Place. Delighted to be joined by John from our Waterford studio on this Tuesday evening. In, in fact, just to stick with 
the stories because what you have here, John, essentially is, is stories that you selected from from your four uh, short story collections written over the past three decades or thereabouts. Sorry to remind you of that amount of time <laughs> flying past so quickly. Um, uh, thanks, Sean. Uh, <laughs> did did you have a criterion or did you have a set of criteria for what? would merit selection for this particular collection, we seldom talk about the past. Well, the the idea came from my agent and friend, Jonathan Williams. Um, And Jonathan, his idea was that we would select or I would select 15 stories. Um, And that was to tie in, I suppose, with the notion, with the Joycean notion of Dubliners and the 15 stories there. and after that, it, I was given uh, kind of a blank canvas by New Island. They said, look, go back, have a look at the books, mm. have a look at the stories, see the ones that you feel are strongest, the ones that you're most attached to. And that's what I did. I spent a couple of months rereading. Uh, and, and that was an interesting experience because suddenly you kind of find yourself discovering things that you had forgotten you had written. Um, but I, I, I suppose what I wanted to do, I wanted to do two things. I wanted to choose 15 stories that, I felt reasonably proud of and I wanted to get some sort of a theme running through the book. I didn't just want it to be disparate stories that didn't necessarily have any connection. And that's where the title came from, because I think all of the stories in the collection are about people who are either living in the past in the sense of not being able to deal with it or running from the past and not being able to deal with it. And that, I think, is probably the cohesive theme that's running through it. And another thing that struck me is, yes, for sure, there are totally fictional stories in there. I'm, I'm certain in, in, if there is any such thing as real fiction that isn't just something that you take from your own life Indeed. and repackage. But th- there are a number of stories that quite definitely were inspired by at least something in real life or potential characters from real life that you then imagined into some kind of fictional world. And maybe if you give us the, the inspiration for one, one of the early stories in the collection, in fact, uh, which comes from your first collection of stories. In fact, it's the title story, isn't it? The Fallen. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and, and you're right. There, there, are, there are numerous stories throughout. But The Fallen was, Fallen was a story that's written really about the First World War and it goes back a long, long way. Uh, I moved in the late 70s to the town of Athai in County Kildare to live and um, I, I have a fondness for old graveyards. And one of the things I, I discovered in, in the graveyard in the old cemetery in Athai uh, was w- initially, as I thought, one single headstone from the Great War. In fact, as it turned out, there are many others in the same cemetery. But um, I was just intrigued by it. The cemetery in Athai is beside the railway line. And my father worked on the railway all his life in Athai. And I came across this headstone, which is right beside the railway line, and it was a World War One headstone. And it just got me thinking. I, I was aware of the fact that Athai had a, a huge connection with the Great War and, and an awful lot of people from the town had gone to fight and hadn't come back. Um, but looking at the headstone, I wondered about the life of the man. Now, in fact, the man who's in this story is a, a creation. He's not mm. based. He's a man called Frank Kinsler. And then so the name Frank Kinsler wasn't on that headstone. No, it that's wasn't. An invented no, it name, wasn't right? on that. That's an invented name because I, I had no idea about the backstory of the man who was buried there. And then I thought about his life and what he might have been. And, and I came up with the conclusion that he was a gardener and that the reason he... I was also aware of the fact that uh, the Great War was intriguing because so many men and women who went to fight in the Great War came back to an Ireland that was completely changed. But I wondered why Frank Kinsler had gone, this fictitious character. And uh, the story uh, that that 
made itself known to me was the fact that he was running from a failed marriage. And then there was this second character who comes into the story, a woman called Mary Lloyd, uh, who's in love with him and with whom he is in love. But he, he, he just can't find the way to tell her how he feels. Mm. And then it took a further step in the, in the notion that he didn't come back from the war. Uh, so how would they communicate? And in turn, that became a ghost story. So it, it's really it's a dual narrative of two voices of Frank Kinsler and Mary Lloyd. But and it, it, it's not blowing anything out of the water. I think it becomes clear fairly early on that uh, both of these people are dead and that yeah. they're ghosts who are communicating. Yeah, I, but yet there is that epistle, that that letter writing quality to it of letters from the front That's back right. to back to home, which kind of evokes a whole a whole different era, if you like. But you you do write this uh, as two parallel narrations, two first person narrations. So you, you you're the voice you're in the voice of Mary Lloyd for sections of it, and you're in the voice of Frank Kinsella for sections of it was that a you know did did you do those two very separately or I did, did yes yeah. I did that that's yeah a really interesting idea because I I I was intrigued this this was one of the first kind of long short stories that I'd ever tackled so we're we're talking about back in in we're talking about writing this in the late eighties early nineties and um, I was intrigued by by how successful or otherwise I might be in getting a female voice but I did initially try to write it section by section by section male female and that wasn't working so I I, I wrote the Frank Hensler section right through the full story and then I went back and I, I took sort a break from it and went back to Mary yeah. Lloyd and, and wrote that as a separate section and then put them together the other, the other interesting aspect of that first person narration is something that I think leads into other stories in the book and indeed into your other writing. Uh, you know, the first person narration, I guess, has a touch of the, the inbuilt ca- actor in it, if you like. <laughs> you have to think in those terms and, yes. and you have a background in playwriting as well. Uh, do, what's the relationship for you between the stories and and? plays or various stage shows that you've made and maybe the, 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 the second story that I want you to talk about Breathless might be a good way of talking about that relationship Yeah uh, actually funny The Fallen began life as, as a piece of theatre as well and Breathless definitely did I, I grew up in South Kildare and, and lived there for most of my life before moving way across the border into County Carlow <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, the area in which I grew up that, that kind of triangle of West Wicklow into Kildare um, over a period of time, as, as people will know, I think, a number of young women disappeared mm. from that area. And that inspired the idea behind what initially was a stage play called Breathless. And it, it, it's not based on specific young women, but it's based on, on the notion of young women disappearing. And, and Breathless began life as a stage place for, for four women. Um, and it's a play and then it became a story because there were things that I wanted to put on stage that didn't work on stage. So they ended up being in the story. And it's really it's it's a story of four women who meet on a summer morning in a field. Uh, none of the four knows where the other three have come from, but it transpires as the story develops that they're all women who have been abducted and killed. And they're telling their stories. And, and what I wanted to do I wanted in general to celebrate and take note of the fact that people who disappear and who are killed and who perhaps are never found had lives and have lives that are that are not just people who were murdered. They are people who lived lives and had a fullness about them. So that's what that story is about. It's about the fullness of these four women's lives and about how they interact with each other and about how if they were 
you know, if they were short-tempered in life, they may well be short-tempered in death, particularly one of the characters. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to, the story to be not a documentary, but to be a recognition of the lives of women who have been brutally abducted and murdered and that they get that they get a voice and get to tell their stories after they have gone. Yeah, and, and I mean, so we get four different characters, I suppose, very, yes. very different characters. One of whom is, you know, a dan- so kind of dancer, one to be nurse or a nurse, want to be dancer, whatever way you yes, want to put that's that. Right. that's right. Uh, there's, a, there's a young girl in there who really is on the, you know, just at the edge of, of blossoming out into adulthood. Yeah. There's a, a, a woman who, who really wished that she'd had more education, but maybe didn't get the opportunities. So you, you, you look at all the different aspects of their life before, obviously before their death, but I, I, I'm interested, I'm wondering, to what you, you said that this came after the stage play. Yes. So you had four different actors playing those characters, I presume, in, in the stage play itself. How did that, how did their interpretations of the character, or what they gave the character, how did that find its, or fit into what went down on the page then subsequently? Well, it was interesting because when we started rehearsal for the play, I had the outline, but I, I asked each of the four actors who, who were going to play the four women if they would come up with aspects of the characters themselves for example one of the characters in the in the play loves the music of pink and that came from an actress who originally came to the workshops and and she loved the music of pink so bits and pieces like now as it transpired the four actors who originally uh, workshopped this none of them was available uh, one of them had got married one of them had got pregnant one of them had got a job and one had emigrated by mm. the time we got on stage so we had four completely different actors uh, appearing on stage when it finally got there but I certainly was conscious when I was writing the short story I, 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 I can't deny that I was conscious of the appearances and the characteristics and the approaches that the four actors had had when they uh, when they they uh, took part in the play, and that really did feed in. And, and you know, when I, when I closed my eyes to see the people mm. about whom I was writing, I, I was seeing the actors uh, rather than seeing kind of imagined characters. Yes, uh, and uh, and and the relationship between a story then and a play, if you like. Do you, can you put more down on the page than you can put on the play? Or, or is it just that they're such different media or different ways of expression, that modes of expression, that they're just very different aspects make their way onto the stage and onto the page? There's a similarity and there's a difference. One of the, I suppose one of the reasons why a couple of plays became short stories, long short stories, and, and both The Fallen and Breathless are, are quite long short stories. I, I felt that there were things that there were, that there were, internal things that couldn't necessarily appear on stage, but that I felt I wanted to put in when I revisited the stories. And and of course, the whole process, as, as you'll know, the whole process of, of rehearsing a play and, and working with a director and so on, you begin to see things that you didn't actually see when you wrote the play and, and you begin to get new ideas and you begin to, to get a depth to the character that you may not have had when mm. you began. So stepping away from those plays and, and coming back to them three or four years later as short stories meant that there were differences in emphasis and there were differences in depth. Yeah that weren't there in the plays. And I suppose it is interesting that when you do a first production of a play, that the, the actor who plays the character in the first place is given the, the, the credit of creating that character as much as the yes. writer is given the credit of absolutely, creating that, absolutely. Creating that yeah. character. Yeah. Um, I, I'm interested to read in the introduction, you, you have one story in of these 15 that is called Absent Friends, or sorry, Absent Children. Yep. Um, uh, you, you could have chosen 
four stories over the period of your 30 years. Four stories that are called absent children. Very different stories. But you give us a hint in the introduction as to why that title even kept coming back to you. Yeah, yeah. I I was 24 when my mother died and I was completely unaware of the fact. I mean, I knew I had two siblings. I had a brother and a sister. Uh, uh, But I was unaware that I had other siblings until just around the time that my mother died when I discovered that there had been other siblings. And I think either consciously or subconsciously, this was something that I think leaked its way into my subconscious anyway. Um, There were a number of of stillborn children in our family who were buried at the bottom of the garden, which was the habit of the time because they were unbaptized children. They couldn't be buried in consecrated ground, Mm. so they were buried elsewhere. And in Uh, some cases... Let me just ask you something about that before before you tell me more about the story, because I was interested in that idea you know, the terrible idea of limbo that was there and it's, it's yeah. no longer there in, 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 in Christian belief as far as, as far as I know. It's not a, a tenet of the church, as it were. But to what extent in your family was the, the idea or did you know that those children were buried down to the, at the bottom of the garden? No. Did that give any kind of comfort? Do you think it gave comfort to your mother, your father? Do you know, I don't know, Sean, because when I was five, we moved house. We, we grew up in a, in a cottage which had a big half-acre garden at the end of it. And my father was a great gardener and everything was in its place. And there was a little bit of a wilderness at the bottom of the garden, which I think we assumed was there for our benefit to play in. And then when I was five, we swapped houses. Uh, we, we literally moved across the football field in Castle Dermot from one house to another. And in leaving that house, we obviously left behind those children. And mm. my mother never spoke to us about this. And I, I, I just discovered when, when she was dying, uh, she did mention the other children. And I asked my father about it and he he very briefly told me and then he said, I don't ever wish to talk about this again. And so we never did. Um, But it certainly, I I think it influenced me that that notion of absence, which I I love about short stories anyway, about the things that are not said and and the things that might have been. That's that's one of the things I love about the short story are are the senses of absence that are there. But I think it was something that got into my head because I uh, and has has been a recurring theme for me ever since that notion of children who are there but who are not there who are there in memory uh, who are there in experience but who are not there in the flesh I'm very touched by what you say about your father and and, you know the sadness that he he would talk about it once and then it it couldn't be mentioned again when you got to the new house was the entire garden uh, planted and looked it after was. and cultivated. Yeah, it was. Yeah, so there, it was, was no, there was no bit left at the end untouched. No, no, no. And as, as I know, I, now I was, as I said, I was only five, but I have a, a very strong memory of the garden that we left. And I do remember mm. playing in, in that bit of wilderness because the rest of it was in potatoes and apples and vegetables and so on, as, as most gardens were. And funnily enough, as late as the 1970s, I remember walking home from a dance on a summer night in Carlow, I had missed a lift and I was walking home um, near Castle Dermot and I met a man going in the opposite direction on a bicycle with a small box on the carrier of the bike and a spade. And it was only subsequently that I realised that there was an old Killeen uh, outside Castle Dermot where some people would choose to bury their unbaptised mm. children. Um, and that that's the way it was right up until then uh, because... There was no alternative, sadly. Yeah, 
extraordinary, extraordinary element of our past for sure. Uh, and then the the the, the other the, the final section of the book, I suppose, deals with uh, once we sang like other men, which was your your most recent collection of yes. short stories, where you basically was it twelve stories that you had there each for each of the apostles. Or was That's it right. Yeah, it was it, it was an attempt at a modern interpretation of the stories. I I got this idea uh, from a friend of mine, uh, Richard Ball, up in Navan. Uh, we were talking one day. We were standing at a football match in Navan. Kildare were playing Mead, and the match can't have been very exciting because we ended up talking about short stories. And um, I remember he said to me at the time, he said, can you imagine if the disciples took Jesus at his word, literally, when he said, eat my body and drink my blood? And that sent me off on a bizarre road. But I came up with the idea of what if 25 years after the death in modern times of a Jesus figure, uh, the 12 Mm -hmm. people who were closest to him told versions their versions of the stories of what happened yeah. to him and to them. And that's where that, that story, my my beloved son and, and a number of the other stories in the collection come uh, from. Yeah. Come so from. You, you got 12 stories out of it. Do you remember who won the match? Uh, Kildare, of course. <laughs> they're saying, Sean. Yeah. That's an unusual story. You didn't get four of those into your collection. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I also wanted to talk to you about the audiobook. Uh, yes. I knew this place because you've spoken a little bit about the relationship between... Um, the, the, a stage play, if you like, and the short story. Now, you you worked in radio for a, a large part of your life, so you're you're well aware of what's needed to yeah. make a radio program. But the specifics of Sunday Miscellany, where you you know people listeners will know you from there, and this audiobook, Not all of the pieces in I knew this place were on Sunday Miscellany, but I presume a number of them were. What what is the secret, if you like? I'll come back to the radio essay, but what about Sunday Miscellany? What's the secret of a Sunday Miscellany piece? Would you say? I, as as you asked me that, I'm thinking of, of something Leonard Cohen said when somebody asked him about songs. He said, if I knew where the good ones came from, I'd go there more often. But uh, I, I think, I think, and probably the producers would, would, would have strong views on this. Uh, a number of things that, I, I, that strike me about Sunday Miscellany, one is the honesty of the stories. I think that's a huge part of it. What you're hearing on Sunday Miscellany are lived experiences. You're hearing reasonably concise stories, which I think is is a wonderful thing too. And I think, certainly for me, the things that I recognise when I listen to Sunday Miscellany, I, I will hear something and I'll think, that's not me, but I recognise the experience and I recognise the feelings that uh, the writer slash reader uh, is bringing to me. And that, I think, and I think actually what can't be underestimated either on Sunday Miscellany is the music, because I think what you get is 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 something that's completely woven together and beautifully woven together. And I think that's the secret. Uh, but in writing a piece for me, I think the pieces that stick in my mind, the, the wonderful pieces I've heard over the years are the ones that have that absolute badge of honesty pinned to mm. them. Yeah, as you say, the music kind of amplifies the story. And the story yeah. amplifies the music or the piece of poetry or whatever it is that, you, that you've heard beforehand. The two are, are kind of interlinked. And then on a more general term then, in I Knew This Place, we get other, I'm calling them radio essays. Are they all fictions or are they all real life stories that you've... No, most of them are real life stories. It, I had The Harvest Press had done the book uh, two years ago and then suggested we do an audio book of, of 28 mm. of the pieces, uh, which I did with the producer, uh, Katie Jakes, uh, who, who was a, a good taskmaster, hard but fair. And um, I, I think... 
Yeah, I think all of the pieces that are on, on the audiobook are drawn from real life. And, and I mean, some of them are very local to me. There, there's the opening one is, is, is about a chap called Billy O, who when I was in, I think, fourth class, he was in what was seventh class, which was a kind of a holding pen till he got out of school. And he ran away with the carnival and he became an heroic figure to us. You know, he, he became somebody whom we, I remember he came back the following year as part of the carnival. Mm. And we thought, wow, this guy has it made. Yeah. Um, so, so they range from that to climbing mountains in Greece. Um, yeah, and everything in between. Well, listen, great to speak with you this evening, John, and continue Thanks, Sean, and you. That's Thank said. you so much. John McKenna speaking to us there about his uh, selected short stories. The book is called We Seldom Talk About the Past, and that's published by New Island Books. And the CD, I Knew This Place, is produced by the Harvest Press. In 19th century Europe, Brahms, Tchaikovsky, Liszt and Mahler were among the composers who dominated the late Romantic era. In Ireland, one of the leading composers of the time was Sir Charles Villiers Stanford. As a teacher, his pupils included Gustav Holst, Rayfall Williams and others who would go on to great success and acclaim. Stanford's legacy somewhat eclipsed in the 20th century by composers like Edward Elgar. But on the weekend of Friday, January the 21st through to Sunday the 23rd, Music for Galway will celebrate the legacy of of Stanford with a series of concerts featuring among others the mezzo-soprano Sharon Carty the clarinetist John Finucane and pianist and festival programmer Finian Collins the weekend will also include a series of talks given by Stanford's biographer professor of music at Durham University and chairman of the Stanford Society Jeremy Dibble you'll be speaking to Jeremy in just a couple of minutes time but I think when most people in this country hear the name Sir Charles Villiers Stanford they'll think of this section there of the Bluebird from Sir Charles Villiers Stanford and that in a performance from New Dublin Voices as I said Um, Jeremy Dibble Professor of Music at Durham University Chairman of the Stanford Society joining me this evening ahead of um, some concerts that are part of Music for Galway featuring and and dealing with the music of Stanford at the end of of the month Uh, just wondering to what extent I know for me and for many people that is the piece they will think of when when they hear the name Stanford how does that represent him and and his work and his ambitions I suppose uh, Jeremy well he was a he was a great composer of choral music and um, I would say he's also probably very well known in Anglican circles Church of England Church of Ireland circles particularly in cathedrals large parish churches for his very original church music as well and that that in has endured throughout the 20th century and this part of the 21st century as well. He was a great choral composer. He knew how to handle voices right down, I think, to the quicks of his fingernails. Um, but, you know, um, it, it's really, uh, with, with this festival in Galway, I think, it's concentrating particularly on um, well, some of his songs 
and in particular his chamber music. Yeah, and, and I, was, I wondered about that, you know, because it often is the case that a composer will be particularly well known for one aspect of his work, but then there's a whole other body of work out there that's not explored to the same extent. Was that one of the, when you, when you were discussing what might be programmed for this particular series of events with, with, with Finning Collins, was that one of the guiding lights for you? Maybe the lesser known works or the lesser performed works of Stanford? Yeah, I think so. I think very much so. I mean, uh, for example, the the festival is including um, the sixth string quartet. I mean, Stanford produced no less than eight string quartets. Four of them were published. Four of them um, are still unpublished. Uh, we we have now actually commercially recorded all of them. But um, we're we're hearing the sixth, which is you know one of the less mm. well known works, but a piece of real technical brilliance. I might come back to, to an aspect of that, but to maybe to put Stanford in some kind of context would be useful before we listen to that piece. We refer to him quite often as an Irish composer. Is that a misnomer? I think, no, I don't think so. I mean, I think Stanford was enormously proud of his Irish heritage. OK, he came from the Protestant ascendancy. He came from that really, truly brilliant group of um, what you might call the professional aristocracy in Dublin in the 1850s, 60s, 70s, uh, with all their writers and physicians, military men, uh, peop- um, you know, they're an, they're an incredible bunch. Uh, and, you know, his own family were very well connected, very well educated lawyers. Um, but OK, you know, after the first 18 years in Dublin where he was educated, he might well have followed his father into the legal profession. Uh, perhaps doing his degree at Trinity College Dublin or something like that, but he chose to go to Cambridge, uh, and thereafter he really lived and worked in England. And to what extent did that Irish background and those years in Ireland, those early years in Ireland, did it feed into the music in any way? And maybe this is a way of setting up a little section from that sixth string quartet. Oh, yes, I think he, he never forgot his... Irish heritage, and and one of those most important things was his connection with the traditional repertoire. I mean, he he loved it, he arranged it, he collected it. I mean, the the famous Petri collection he edited in between 1902 and 1905. And I think one of the most interesting things about a lot of Stanford's very lyrical music is that a lot of Irish melody is assimilated into his musical style. And, um, you know, we can hear this in all sorts of places. But I think, for example, in the sixth string quartet, we can hear it in the opening melody, the opening section of the slow movement, which I think is, mm. um, again, beautifully rhapsodic. Yeah, and that's the, the andante, the quasi-lento movement. Let's have a, let's have a listen to it. That's a, a, right, a yeah. We'll have a listen to a part of it. A little 
section there from the opening of the Andante movement from Stanford's String Quartet Number no. 6 in A minor, and that in a recording featuring the Dante Quartet, uh, but a, at the uh, upcoming performances in Galway, it is, and the name of the quartet that I know very well has gone clean out of my head. Maybe you can help me with this one, Jeremy Dibble. Uh, the, I, I, I will find I it. You see, is it the Royal Archive? No, Royal no, I, I'll, find it, I'll find quartet. it. I'll find it. I'll find it in a second, in a second as, you, <laughs> as, as, as you're telling me uh, about... He, he, he was as important as a teacher, possibly, and maybe more important as a teacher than he was as a, a as a composer. Would that be fair to say? Well, yes, I suppose it would be. I, I think, unfortunately, Stanford has suffered, perhaps in the certainly in, in the twentieth century after he he died in nineteen twenty four, um, from always being referred to as the teacher of. And you look at the catalogue of. Pupils. I mean, you mentioned people like Vaughan Williams, Gustav Holst. I mean, it it, it runs off like a catalogue of composers of the, of of, of Great Britain and Ireland. In fact, mm. for the first fifty years of the twentieth century, um, and he's always referred to as their teacher, without I think um, ever really recognising that he was actually a really very substantial composer in his own right. And some of his own pupils, people like Vaughan Williams. Um, and Herbert Howells, for example, another one, always maintained that this was the case, and that we were in some ways going to rediscover him uh, mm. at some later date. The Contempo Quartet, by the way, is the, <laughs> was the title of the quartet that I was uh, trying to find. I think it is they who will be playing uh, as, yeah, part, yeah. As, as part of the, the festival, for sure. And I see, yes, the, RIA, the Royal Irish Academy of Music, the Student Quartet, is, is in there as, as well. What about this idea of his, you know, his his European quality? Did that become an issue? Was that part of what kind of possibly eclipsed his work? Why people like Elgar eclipsed his work as we got into the twentieth century? Well, I think Elgar became the, the flavour of the month, really, from about eighteen ninety nine. I mean, work like the Enigma Variations. I really think that hit the headlines, uh, and um, I think there's no doubt that you know Stanford. And perhaps his other great English contemporary, Sir Hubert Parry, uh, had probably experienced their heyday in the 1890s. Um, but I think after the First World War, um, all of that, mu- all of the music, and this includes Elgar to some extent, had looked to Germany in particular for their kind of aesthetic guide, uh, their stylistic guide, their values, and so on. And I think, you know, obviously, after a bruising war. Um, a bruising conflagration. Um, many countries, and this included um, Britain um, and others, wanted to mm. uh, turn their back on this to some extent. And, um, you know, a new nationalism, a new English nationalism. Well, of course, there was a new Irish nationalism too. For a different you know, type the, of reason, the, possibly, why his, his music may have fallen yes, out indeed. of favour here. <laughs> at any rate, I'm sure those will, those that, will be the subject of, of, of what you'll be speaking about, Jeremy, at your talks. Indeed, Jer- yeah. yeah. And Jeremy Dibble there speaking to me about the music and, and legacy of the composer Sir Charles Villiers Stanford. Uh, the legacy will be celebrated. A series of talks by Jeremy 
Academy, followed by performances of music by Stanford and his contemporaries, all taking place at the Town Hall Theatre in Galway as part of Music for Galway, Friday, January the 21st through until Sunday, January the 23rd. Now, as things stand, the performances will go ahead, but restrictions may uh, change in the meantime. So obviously best to keep an eye on the website and make sure what is happening and how it is happening before you set out. Musicforgalway.ie will give you the up-to-date information on all of that. And that is our lot for this Tuesday evening here on Arena. Uh, Leah Murphy and Paula Shields Research. Janice Furphy was the broadcast coordinator. Pather Carney was on sound this evening and tonight's programme was uh, produced by Kay Sheehy. I will be back with you tomorrow night, 7 o'clock here on RT Radio 1.